Thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, if you ever want information, uh, go to dharmapunksnyc.com and uh, information on the day-longs or the afternoon gatherings on Sundays and also the upcoming retreat at Garrison over Labor Day, which Kathy and I are very much looking forward to offering. Seems we've got already a good crew of people attending. Uh, if you would like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, everything I do is entirely by donation. So the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. There's a Patreon page and also just PayPal as well. And all the information is on the website. So thanks for your support. That's what allows me to do what I do and stay afloat. With that, we're talking about the ability to mentalize or accurately, to use the vernacular, read or understand what's going on in other people's minds. So what is that? What did the Buddha teach about that? And um, why does it apply to us? Let's find out. So there's a lot of suttas that the Buddha mentions how important it is to accurately discern what other people are thinking or feeling. Uh, in the Kavada Sutta, it goes something like, when one has achieved a mind that's focused and calm, one can read the mind states of other beings. And the Sachita and Samantha Suttas the Buddha says if a practitioner isn't capable of reading other people's minds, they should observe their own minds and learn how to their own mind and learn how to discern whatever emotion they're feeling, like lust, anger, fantasy, and so on and so forth. And perhaps in the most uh, one of the most important suttas in the Buddhist canon is the lion's roar, which where the Buddha proclaims the, um, the true weight and the true breadth of his teachings and all they offer. And at one point he says, uh, when one becomes awakened, uh, one's mind encompasses, encompasses other beings' minds. Uh, one can tell when another is afflicted by lust or not afflicted by lust, when one is affected by uh, greed or not affected by greed, when one is affected by delusion or not, when one's mind is calm or not. So this capability of reading other people's minds isn't at all what we in the Western concept of mind reading or clairvoyance might uh, mistake it to be. In when we think of reading people's minds in the West, or we think it's uh, the sort of magical ability to know if somebody's thinking a specific number, or thinking of a specific person, or some specific uh, place. So in the West, we we believe it's all about reading other people's thoughts, and. What the Buddha is talking about is not at all about reading the specific thoughts that another human being has. It's far more crucial and far more important than that. You see, as a tribal species with massive frontal lobes dedicated to fitting into the social arena, we are, uh, we have a dominant fear or disorder, which is social anxiety. In uh, the course of our evolution, the most dangerous thing that could happen to us was not being attacked by a predator. It was being kicked out of the clan to which we belonged. If we were socially ostracized, if we were rejected by others, that rejection would lead to death because we wouldn't be able to we would be sleeping unprotected. We wouldn't have other people to share their food with us. We would starve or just, uh, we wouldn't last at all. So deeply embedded into our species is 
a tremendous uh, social anxiety, fear of being rejected. It's it's an inevitable and in our country uh, during the pandemic, uh, social anxiety levels raised to uh, unforeseen before heights. Before the pandemic in 2019, I believe the one out of every 10 people met the criteria of an anxiety disorder due to social distancing and lack of enough connections. A year later, that number uh, tripled to 30% of the population, one out of every three people, roughly. Um, but all of us, to one degree or another, experience social anxiety. We are concerned what other people are feeling about us, what their intentions are towards us. Uh, we are concerned about if our feelings, our needs, or our behaviors might lead to rejection. We're prone to being self-conscious and concealing our feelings at times out of fear that others will disapprove or will not understand. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why uh, connecting with close friends or um, people who are safe is so relieving because when we can disclose our internal states to another, it's such a great relief the great American psychologist Carl Rogers noted that we all have a felt sense of self, which is how we feel internally versus a, uh, an egoic or a, uh, a story that we want to promote to others. And the distance between the egoic uh, sense uh, identity and the felt self, what we're actually feeling, the greater that disparity, the more we're concealing from others, the greater our, our anxiety. And the best way to alleviate anxiety is simply to go to another person and report our internal states. Irving Goffman, probably one of the most important sociologists of the last 60 years, so influential uh, in if you ever take took a sociology course. Um, Goffman had a famous theory that just as actors perform on stage to leave an impression, so to everyone in their everyday lives performs their emotions and behaviors and actions because unconsciously and consciously we're trying to leave positive impressions in the minds of others. So it's deeply embedded in our species to constantly evaluate what other people, what other people's intentions or feelings are about us, because in the worst case, we'd be caught off guard and we wouldn't know that they were harboring ill intent or that they would be rejecting us. And then we would wind up historically through much, much of our evolution, that would lead to our death if we were socially rejected. So it was very important to constantly be monitoring other people's feelings. And if something seemed off, to change how they felt about us. Across the span of evolution, also, the most vulnerable experiences a human would have was when we encountered a stranger. Uh, death by other humans was exceedingly common. And we had in those sudden encounters when you were out foraging for food uh, or shelter and you were separated from other people in your clan and you stumbled upon somebody from another clan that was unfamiliar with you, you had about a half a second to discern, are they safe? Are they going to steal my lunch? Are, am I going to steal their lunch? Are are Am I vulnerable to attack? Are they vulnerable? Are they friendly? Are they going to be helpful? Are, are they just, do they have no intentions towards us whatsoever? So how would we do this? In a half a second, in the blink of an eye, how did we evaluate other people's intentions towards us? Well, that process is known as neuroception. Um, 
uh, amongst many other terms, we unconsciously, very quickly, uh, pre-consciously, I should say, read other people's facial expressions, their body language, their movement, their eye contact, all of these nonverbal cues. And we do it in a half a second and we come up with an answer. This person is going to take advantage of me. They're going to attack me. They're going to run from me. They're going to be indifferent towards me. They're going to offer to share something with me. Neuroscience shows that we have what's called a mirror neuron system that allows us to feel the another person's feelings in our own bodies and thus accurately to some degree know what they're feeling in any given moment. This mirror neuron system doesn't use cognitive processes. In fact, if you look at the regions of the brain that are responsible for our mirror neuron system, it's some of the lowest, most preconscious, uh, oldest regions of the brain. I'm talking about the visceral motor nervous system. That's one of our major nervous systems that's just in the in the brain, the brainstem, and uh, all it does is um, uh, organize motor responses in situ different situations. Also, the tegmentum, which is in the brainstem, and the lower midbrain and the hypothalamus, which runs the endocrine system, all these are the basic foundations of the mirror neuron system, which allows us to feel what other people are feeling, and in so doing, understand what other people's minds are, what's going on in other people's minds. Once we get this basic readout, it, it happens extremely quickly. Then these circuits feed the amygdala. If we're going to have to run, it organizes fear, fight responses, or it might also activate the hippocampus, say, be ready to remember what's going on in this situation. It might activate the orbital frontal prefrontal cortex, which to build expectations of other people's behavior. If we see somebody who's injured, it might activate the dorsal medial, which might uh, engage empathy or compassion. But again, all this is in, happens in a half a second. Uh, so it's incredibly fast. And uh, the result of all these processes once we check them and then use our frontal lobes to decide if they're accurate or not is what's called mentalization. And that is the ability to appraise or accurately understand with some accuracy, another person's feelings and intentions based almost entirely on nonverbal cues. We don't as a species really mentalize by so much asking people, we really mentalize by reading their nonverbal cues. Very often it's the corner of their eyes and the corner of their mouth because those engage are about muscles they can't control. So you, even if you're trying to act like you find something funny, you might try to make you you might try to laugh performatively, but you can't make your eye, the corners of your eyes raise or the corner of your mouth raise as much as if you really find something funny. So unconsciously, we check those areas of the face when we're quickly reading how they think or feel or what their intentions, I should say, are towards us in any situation. Um, when people can accurately understand what's going on in someone's mind, when they can accurately discern, okay, that person's angry or that person's frightened. That's an enormous thing to be able to tell because anger and fear look very similar. They engage the same systems of the, of the sympathetic nervous system. They lead to the same cranial muscles being engaged. So to accurately be able to tell someone's frightened from somebody's angry, and people often mistake the two, requires sophisticated mentalization. If we can mentalize others accurately or represent in our own minds what other peoples are actually feeling, 
then we a lot of things start going right for us very quickly. We will befriend the right people. We'll know who to trust and who not to trust. We will move through life easily making new friends because we'll narrate, navigate towards people that are uh, have positive intentions towards us. On the other hand, if we are constantly dating people who uh, disappear or ghost or are simply looking for something from us, if we are uh, constantly trusting people who disappoint us, so on and so forth, it means we have poor mentalization skills. It means that we're not uh, often accurately, accurately representing what's going on in their minds, in our minds. We're not understanding what they're feeling. We might have an over-optimistic appraisal of how much they care or how much they want to be. Or sometimes it's the opposite. We might, people who have a lot of insecure attachments in childhood and mentalized poorly might constantly think people are manipulating out to get them, are untrustworthy, when in fact these are people who are have nothing but compassion in their hearts. So uh, either way, if we're not capable of constantly throughout our life accurately mentalizing people, disaster happens. Think of all the... Um, the needless shootings in this country where people who are entirely uh, going about their lives, who somehow wind up getting shot by others who misinterpret their actions as um, aggressive. Uh, think of how many uh, in law enforcement, how many police officers sometimes overreact and misinterpret the mind states of people of color because they simply can't accurately represent the what's going on in the minds of a person of another ethnicity or color. And so they get it totally wrong and we have cultural disasters as a result. Um, the ability to mentalize starts very early in our first two years of life. Children signal their internal states to their mother or their father, whoever their caregiver is, and that caregiver reflects back what they think the child is feeling. So if a child's uncomfortable, the parent might go, ooh, you're uncomfortable. They might squinch their face or do something that indicates to the child they get it. They're reflecting back what they think the child is feeling. But there's a second part that they do that's just as crucial. Besides reflecting back the child's internal state, like if the child is suddenly excited, the parent might smile and go, ooh, you're, you're excited, and might make a gesture that, that reflects that. But once the parent does that, then they do something that's called marking. This is when the parent says, I know what you're feeling, but I'm not. I might not be feeling the exact same thing. I might be feeling something different. So, for instance, if a child is frightened, the parent might go, ooh, you're frightened, and make a frightened face. But then the parent will go, but it's okay, and will smile. And that smile will indicate to the child that even though I get you're frightened, everything's okay. So suppose a baby is upset, it wants to feed, or it's, you know, shat its underwear, <laughs> not underwear, it's diapers, and uh, the mother notes the distress and reflects back the infant's emotional discomfort. She goes, oh, you're uncomfortable. And she might frown. She might, you know, wince or scrunch her face. But then the mother will do something to indicate that she's okay, that she can take care of the baby, that she's not uncomfortable. She might smile or she might talk in a sing-songy voice or she might uh, do something that lifts the baby up and reassures the baby. So in childhood, when we get these two experiences, a caregiver that reflects back how we feel, but also says, they're they're calm, they're okay, they can take care of it. The child 
begins to develop something that's called a theory of mind, which is the child begins to appreciate that um, my, my emotions are understandable, that other people have emotions that might be different than my own emotions. And there's a famous test that establishes when a child, uh, generally around four, develops the theory of mind. What you do is you get a bunch of four year, uh, a four-year-old and you show a candy box that the child thinks has candy in it, but then you open it up and you show that it has pencils in it. Okay, so the child realizes in the candy box are pencils. Now what you do is you bring another child into the room and you say, what do you, what do you think that other child believes is in the candy box? And if the child can mentalize, it'll say, well, that, that other child will think candy's in the box because that's the reasonable thing, even though I know that pencils are in. So in other words, the child begins to understand that what I know is different from what other people know. And what I feel is different from what other people feel. And that is the foundations of all emotional intelligence. The ability to understand that other people might be feeling emotions and have intentions that are entirely different than our feelings and intentions. And that to get what they're feeling, we have to put aside our suspicions and actually really pay attention to their nonverbal cues if we want to figure it out. Now, if a mother, if, if we do actually have good parenting in those years, we'll develop empathy, social maturity, we'll, have, we'll be much more secure in life, and we'll be much more able early on in life to bond with others, and these patterns will continue. On the other hand, if caregivers fail to pay attention to the child's emotions, fails to reflect them back, or fails to mark that they're okay, the infant will start to project its fears onto the parent. And the only thing the infant will see is either its fears or its, you know, its own aggression. It won't understand that the mother or father's emotions are different than their own. And that a whole host of huge deficits begin to develop from that. If a parent, for instance, is regularly distracted or neglectful, the child doesn't begin to understand what the mother is or the father is feeling, what their intentions are, and the child doesn't develop that ability to read other people's internal states. The child will constantly project its worst fears or expectations onto others, and what are long-term outcomes, uh, the great psychologists Bateman and Peter Fanaghi say are borderline personality disorders stem from an inability to mentalize. Those are people who can only think in black or white. Other people are only heroes or villains. Uh, they're prone to emotion dysregulation and constant conflict and uh, find forming lasting relationships to be very, very difficult. Uh, and many other cluster B disorders develop. People become subject to paranoid fantasies and victimization delusions where they believe that they're constantly being mistreated or other people are constantly out to get them. And they only will understand emotions that either correspond with their own internal states. And so if they're angry, they'll, only, they'll believe everybody else is angry at them. Or if they're frightened, they'll, they might still project anger onto everybody else, or they might believe that everyone else is too frightened to care about them. But they won't accurately understand that other people are doing okay and might even care about them. They won't be able to read who's safe and who's not safe. So the less accurate our representation of other people's internal states, the less successful our ability to build relationships, to figure out who to trust, to uh, function easily in social settings, will will over time really struggle 
and interpersonal settings. It's interesting to note that mentalization is most impaired, for example, in people with autism spectrum disorder, because autism uh, directly compromises the brain's mirror mirror system. It actually inhibits people to feel what other people are feeling. So what do we do about all this? The Finnegi and Bateman note that all forms of therapy uh, are helpful. In their one of their papers, How Mentalization Changes the Mind, they note that it doesn't matter which kind of therapy you choose, it'll develop our ability to accurately understand what's going on in other people's minds. Because what happens in therapy is we recount to our therapist or our pastor or whoever we're talking with our, in our interactions with others, especially the interactions that made us feel uncomfortable or resulted in conflict or misunderstanding. So we talk about what happens between ourselves and others. And if we're really seeking the therapist's help, the therapist will often give a differing interpretation. They might say, well, maybe that person wasn't being sarcastic or being critical of you. Maybe they were actually confused and simply asking you a question. Maybe they weren't being cynical. And so when people are in therapy long enough and they trust the therapist, they begin to seek out different interpretations of the events between them and other people. Additionally, in any therapeutic encount encounter and counseling, one of the things I regularly do is when I get the feeling that someone's uh, perception of what I'm thinking might be divergent from what I'm actually thinking or feeling, I'll ask them, what, what do you think I'm feeling right now? And it's not an egotistical thing. What I'm doing is I'm actually encouraging the individual to report how they're reading me so that I can then say, no, actually, that's not what I'm feeling towards you, or that's not what I'm feeling right now. What I'm actually feeling is X. And that is one of the ways Finnegi and Bateman say is the most helpful when someone actually informs us that our interpretation of what they're thinking or feeling is wrong. That's how we grow. That's how we actually correct and override bad mentalization tendencies in us. Um, it's so that's incredibly important. If we're not inclined to therapy, it's essential to actively seek out the participation of friends or other people in your life. Recount misunderstandings. Ask for differing interpretations of what has occurred. Don't We should never do ourselves the injustice of looking for people to simply validate only our feelings. That's beneficial, but if we only do that and we don't encourage people who we rely on to actively contradict our interpretations of interactions, then we can never correct our mentalization capabilities. We always wind up misinterpreting what other people are feeling towards us. So it's vital, even if we're not in therapy, to every time there's any interaction that is confusing, that feels unsettling, that where we we feel uh, something is amiss, to actively don't wait, find someone, and don't ask them to simply validate, you know, how you, whatever you think or feel about it, actively recount the interaction, including as much of their facial expressions or body language as you can and see if you can get them to offer a differing appraisal so that you or I, all of us can over time begin to correct 
the deficits in our ability to mentalize. And all of us in some arenas, whether it's with coworkers or roommates or bosses or family members, especially family members, all of us somewhere in our lives struggle to accurately read what other people are thinking or feeling. Now, interestingly, Fanagi notes that simply understanding the importance of mentalization improves mentalization. So once you read up about it, once you do any research on mentalization, once you hear about it from a therapist or hopefully from a, a tattooed Buddhist pastor, that that actually improves our mentalization skills because the more we focus our attention on overriding our or challenging our own mentalization at times to, to fine tune it, then over time, we can become more accurate. So simply just paying attention to how important this process is, is very helpful. Um, it's also noted in clinical studies that the more we focus on observing other people's nonverbal cues, rather than when we're engaged with people thinking about what we're going to say next, in fact, challenging ourselves to not think about what we're going to say next and act actively challenge ourselves to pay more attention to other people's body language, their tone of voice, whether they're making eye contact, what their, um, their facial expressions are, and then encourage ourselves whenever it's feasible to ask the other person how they're feeling. In so doing, we can begin to accurately or at least begin to note when our appraisals of other people's internal states are accurate and when they're not. And that over time will help us immensely in life. We'll become more capable of knowing who to trust, what other people want from us, when we can relax, when we're being, you know, judged or whatever. All of that becomes far more available the more we challenge ourselves when we're around others we observe their nonverbal cues and then we ask, which, you know, we, we evaluate what we think they're feeling and then we ask them, what's going on? How are you feeling right now? Uh, and then if they say something that's markedly different than what we suspect, well, we know there's work to be done in that area. And finally, uh, mindfulness aims to change our relationship with feelings, moods, and thoughts. When we practice mindfulness, what we're doing is we're not interacting with our thoughts. We're not trying to change our feelings or moods. All we're doing is we're observing them and we're labeling or noting what these, what the mood is. So when we're feeling something, the Buddha says, just no, am I feeling comfortable or uncomfortable or neutral? So we label it rather than rather than try to change the feeling, we just simply observe it and label it. Then when we observe our moods, we might label it as I'm, I'm um, frustrated, I'm happy, I'm disappointed, I'm angry, I'm frightened, I'm lonely, I'm, uh, I'm in awe, I'm uh, tired. And so just labeling our moods and simply observing our thoughts and feelings arise and pass, our attention is drawn to the flux of mental states. And the more we can accurately learn to appraise what we're feeling uh, or what our mood is in any given moment, Fanegi and Bateman argue that that improves our ability to accurately represent what's going on in other people's minds. So with that, we are going to now do a classic mindfulness practice as taught by the Buddhists some 2,500 years ago. And so what I'm going to ask you to do now is to look away from the screen and to find a very, very relaxed, comfortable seated position. Uh, and really just if there's a screen or iPhone in front of you, just turn away, put it away 
so that there's no temptation whatsoever to look at the screen. And closing the eyes, mindfulness is a practice we really do want to do with our eyes closed. It's not an eyes open practice. So what we do is we close our eyes and we're first going to just try to relax our internal experience a little bit so that it's easier to stay with it. So what I'd invite you to do is just find the areas in your body that are most uncomfortable, if there's any, like if you feel that you could relax your shoulders, roll them back, drop them, allow your angst, your arms to hang comfortably. Take a moment to Soften the belly. This is not a time to hold in the belly. When I'm at the gym, I constantly hear uh, personal trainers yelling or encouraging people to suck in their abdomens. And that's great for exercise, but it's terrible advice for meditation. In meditation, we want to let any tendency to hold in the belly to to be completely let go of. So really go for that Buddha belly. Release any tension. If there's any tension or tightness that you're holding in your jaw, try to allow your jaw to release. If you find that your Forehead is furrowed. See if you can, with your mind, smooth it out. Try to find the most comfortable position for your tongue and the, your mouth, whatever feels the most relaxed for it. Release any tightness in the throat. And if you can release any tendency to clench the sit bones, the buttocks, all that, there's nothing to resist. Just allow yourself to fully sink into whatever you're seated upon so that there's no resistance. Just let Whatever is holding you up, do all the work. Don't try to release any just held tension. And then also see if we can put aside all the momentum of the day, which means just incline our breath to be a little bit longer, more complete on the in-breath and more soft extended, subtle on the exhalation. Try not to, especially don't cut off breathing out. The longer the exhalation, that helps engage the parasympathetic. And all of this all together, complete breaths, relax, soften belly, releasing any tension in the shoulders, the of cranial muscles and so on and so forth. All of this together, we're just trying to create a slightly more comfortable internal experience. And so the first real instruction in mindfulness is to pay attention to the body in and of itself. Just noting whether you're breathing in or out. And just notice 
the sensations in the body arising and passing without maybe the swallowing, the, the blinking of the eyes, the subtle itches and twitches and uh, just felt contact sensations. Just observe it like it's a constellation of stars. And you don't try to change the constellation. You simply observe it and relax and be with it without any desire for it to be different. Just let yourself be with the body and let's give some attention to that which has been keeping us alive and that which has allowed us to have every experience in life, our bodies. So we'll just sit here for a while, just being with, breathing, being with body. Every time your thoughts might wander off to a memory or a plan or any other virtual reality, just, just allow it to be there, but bring your attention back to your body. And anytime you come back, just try to relax your body so that it's a really comfortable place to practice.
So when we're paying attention to the body, we're just paying attention to the ambient sensations that arise and pass without regard to anything that's happening in the world. But now we're going to pay attention to feelings, and feelings are responses or reactions sometimes to events around us. Sometimes they're just reactions to memories or thoughts as they arise and pass. Sometimes feelings are responses to stimuli we're not even aware we're processing. Feelings are much more organized and they involve almost invariably the front of the body. When you feel uncomfortable in a situation, your stomach tightens, your shoulders might clench, your jaw might clench as well, your eyebrows might furrow. If you're suddenly comfortable in a situation, all the muscles in the front of your body might relax in tandem. And you might notice this sense of ease. You might notice a sudden, in conjunction with that change in the front of your body, you might notice that your breath relaxes. On the other hand, if the feeling is negative, not only do we feel the tightness in our belly, the clenching in our shoulders and jaws, we might also notice that we're holding our breath. So as opposed to body sensations, feelings are very much events that all work in tandem together, and they're generally a reaction to something. Now, what that re we're reacting to doesn't really matter, but what we're simply going to do now is just note whatever we're feeling while we're feeling it. So the the Buddha says there's only three questions to ask or three labels to put on our feeling. That's, I'm feeling comfortable, relaxed. I'm feeling uncomfortable, re reactive. Or I'm not really feeling much of anything about the situation. Kind of bored, neutral, disinterested. So, bearing that in mind, while you continue to pay attention to your internal experience, shift away from what you were previously observing and just ask yourself for a little while, what am I feeling right now? Am I feeling comfortable, uncomfortable, or am I feeling neutral, not much discomfort or comfort.
At this point, we're going to pay attention to moods. The moods are the quality of the mind, not the mostly physical responses to changes in our environment or reactions. They're more this ongoing quality of attention, like do we feel tired? Do we feel bright and energetic? Do we feel distracted, difficult to focus our attention? Do we feel uh, the presence of anger or fear? Or the Buddha says, are we craving something? So this is a tendency of how we use our attention, whether our mind is being pulled in some direction or not. It's less physical mood than just an overall bias, an overall attitude, as it were. Moods change slower than feelings. So the mood of the mind, take your time and just observe your attention. Does it feel restless or restful? Does it feel distracted? Does it feel really focused? Does it, does your attention constantly return to something that it wants or does it return to something that it doesn't like are memories of something pleasant or unpleasant continually returning and once you come up with a label i'm angry i'm happy i'm tired i'm cranky i'm distracted i'm lonely i'm could be hungry, I'm calm. Just after you've labeled it, just note if anything changes in the mood or if it stays the same. Sometimes labeling uh, has been shown in numerous studies. It's a kind of emotion regulation and that when we label our mood, sometimes they change. So just become aware of that. And lastly, the last, the fourth foundation of mindfulness after body sensations, feelings, moods, is just to know what type of thoughts we're adding on to our experience right now. For instance, there might be these thoughts that pop up saying, I'm not any good at this. There might be an averse of thoughts like, what's the point? 
There might be positive thoughts like, oh, I'm pretty good at this, or oh, this would this is easier, this practice than I thought. Just what type of thoughts are you labeling, are you adding to this experience? Don't judge the thoughts, don't engage with the thoughts, don't validate the thoughts, don't extrapolate, just note what kind of thoughts have been present and just label them as best you can. Might be criticism, judgment, might be exaggeration, might be uh, disregard, might be uh, approving. Come up with your own word to describe the kind of thoughts you've been adding to the simple experience of sitting and paying attention to our internal states. What have we been adding to this experience in terms of inner chatter? So the more we just practice these four observances, it's noted the better our ability not only to know what state we're in, but the more we familiarize ourselves with our own minds, uncannily, that makes our ability to interpret the minds of others become more accurate. So thanks for your practice and taking your time. You can, at your own pace, open your eyes. And so thanking you for your support.